And uh, I want to thank our choir and Teresa and Cindy and John. I want to thank our acolytes for all they do, as well as our workers up in the sound booth. Uh, it's good to be with you all. And uh, for those who are newer here, please, we hope you'll check in with us. There's a little QR code in your bulletin. We would love for you to click on that and fill out that little survey. It helps us get to know you better because we would love to find out how we can help you feel most at home here at Conyers Methodist. And, uh, and so by beginning to help us get to know you better uh, through that little QR code, it would be awesome. So as we... Uh, look to the word of God today um, we're going to be looking at one of the most amazing stories in scripture outside of stories of Jesus and that is the story of Saul's conversion Saul who had become Paul who would write about two-thirds of the New Testament with his letters uh, we're going to jump in the story but we're going to look at it kind of from a different angle than maybe you've heard preached in the past we're going to look at it from the what Paul or Saul learned here about the nature of church in his conversion. And so we're, let's just jump in. Uh, Saul did not like Christians. He did not, they weren't even called Christians then. They were called followers of the way. He didn't like them at all. He was ready to throw them into prison. Uh, he thought that they were uh, bad news for the Jewish community and for the Jewish faith. And so he was doing everything he could to undermine the work of those who followed Jesus until he headed to Damascus one day. And this is how the story goes in the ninth chapter of Acts. You can read with me if you have your Bibles on your phones or, or wherever. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he had opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple there named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man. All the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, 
This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the nations and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You pray with me and for me today. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for the gift of Jesus and the gift of Paul. Help me lift up Jesus as we look at the story of Saul, who you would transform into Paul, who with his writings has continued to shape, guide us all in your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, y'all, this story is one of the, again, one of the more amazing stories in the New Testament. And also, it is one of the strongest evidences for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Because we know Saul, who would become Paul, was a historical person who wrote historical letters. And even if scholars don't agree on if he wrote all the letters or most of the letters, they still know he wrote a bunch of them. He was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, writer of the New Testament with his letters. And it is clear from his own testimony in his letters, as well as here in the, in the book of Acts, that something happened on that road to Damascus that just is unexplainable, except that Jesus appeared to him in a way that transformed his life forever. And as such, this is one of the critical pieces of evidence for us that Jesus is not dead. He's not still in a tomb. His body never rotted. This is one of the critical pieces that Jesus is alive, risen from the dead. Because this fella named Saul, who hated Jesus, who hated the church, who hated the disciples, all of a sudden comes face to face with something on the road to Damascus and is never the same again. Not only that, but he is the primary shaper for the church of Jesus. And so, as we look at this story today, that, that's just one piece that I want you to realize because with the rest, we're headed in kind of a different direction. You see, I think after this episode, I'm not sure what Paul was thinking about, uh, you know, while he was in Damascus those three days uh, fasting and praying, but it was probably something like, oh my gosh, how wrong have I gotten it? I can't believe this. I thought I was right. I thought I was on God's path. I thought I was doing God's will in maintaining the Jewish faith. And then Jesus shows up and he has blasted me. And now I, he's torn me down, and I, I, now he's going to pick back up the pieces. What do I do from here? And as he begins to wrestle with these new realities, 
one of the realities that the seeds were planted in his event on the road to Damascus was Paul's understanding about us and what it means to be the church of Jesus and what it means to be followers of Jesus. And that's the piece I really want us to look at today. What does it mean to be followers of Jesus from Paul's perspective and his encounter on the Damascus Road? And if the key is his conversation with Jesus in this journey, where in verse 4 it says, He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, Jesus didn't have to phrase it that way, right? He could have said, Paul, Paul, or excuse me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? Or why are you persecuting my church? Or why are you persecuting, you know, uh, uh, the people of the way? He could have said any of those things, but he doesn't. Instead, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in the question is this incredible link of what it means to be the church of Jesus. And so we want to dig into this a little more and find out Paul and how this event shaped his understanding of us, even here today. He asks it even the first question, Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. First, I want to look at the word Lord. When Saul started his journey to Damascus, and he walked down that road, headed up kind of northeast, I guess, when he started that journey, he was lost in relationship with Jesus Christ. He had no connection to Jesus, didn't want to have any connection to Jesus. But by the time he gets to Damascus, he is no longer lost, but instead he is calling Jesus Lord. A total transformation. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Eight times in the 22 verses that we read this morning, eight times either Ananias or somebody mentions the word Lord in reference to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And it's clear that Saul understood that almost immediately that the one he had been pressuring and going after was, in fact, the Lord in charge of all things. Now, I know in, in our church worship service, we, we enjoy affirming our faith, often with the Apostles' Creed. I didn't use the Apostles' Creed today because I thought the, the one we read focuses more on the lordship of Jesus Christ and his conquering death and the resurrection. But a lot of times we'll say the Apostles' Creed, but the Apostles' Creed only goes back maybe 1,800, 1,900 years ago. Um, there is a confession that goes back further than even the Apostles' Creed. And that confession of the early Christian church was this, Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the first, greatest, and most important confession that any of us make as followers of Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's that turning point that Saul made in his life on that road to Damascus from being lost to Jesus to calling Jesus Lord. And so just to break it down, what do we mean when we say Jesus Christ is Lord? Now, I could probably do a whole series of messages just on that one thing. But just to look at it briefly, first, Jesus' name, which the writer of Matthew tells us, Jesus means God saves. 
God saves. It's connected to Joshua, or in Hebrew, Yeshua. But it means God saves, that Jesus has come for a purpose, and that purpose has to do with saving us from something we cannot do or fix on our own. But Jesus is also titled the Christ. In Hebrew, that's the word Messiah. Both words mean to be anointed or sprinkled. And in the Old Testament, it would be the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah that were the anointed ones. You know, Saul was the first king anointed as king of Israel. King David then took over and received the anointing as well. And so when they talk about longing for a Jewish Messiah, they're looking for God to anoint another king, a return of the king, who would restore Israel and restore the nation. And so when we say Jesus is the Christ, we're saying Jesus is God's chosen king. But when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, that last word Lord also is full of theological meaning. Yes, it means he's in charge. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the, the one God has anointed to put in charge of the whole universe. But it goes even deeper than that. You see, in the Old Testament, um, the Jewish people did not like to call God by name. His name was Y-H-W-H. We have mispronounced it through German and called it Jehovah. Jehovah is a mispronunciation of Y-H-W-H. But when the ancient Hebrew people wanted to call God by name, they wouldn't use Y-H-W-H. They would instead use the word Adonai. And Adonai is the Jewish word for Lord. So whenever they wanted to call God by name, they wouldn't call him by name. Instead, they would call him Lord. And that's why if you read in your Bibles, you'll find capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever all those are capitalized in the Old Testament, they are talking about Y-H-W-H, the name of God. So that's probably more than you want to know. But here's the point. When we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we are also saying Jesus Christ is is the Adonai that is mentioned in the Old Testament. And in that connection, Jesus, as Paul would preach almost immediately after this episode, that Jesus is the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. That, that in receiving the name of Lord, he was also receiving the nature of God in his human form. It is connecting Jesus not just as a great king, but as part of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All that is connected to our confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. And so like for Paul and like for any of us, the main question we ask in our lives is this, is Jesus, and am I willing to make Jesus, my Lord? Am I willing to let him be Lord of my life? And if he is Lord of my life, then do I get to call the shots? Do I get to make the decisions? Do I get to run my life how I want to? 
No, I give up that right. I give it to Jesus and I say, Jesus, you are my Lord. And so I will trust you with what you want for my life. And we begin to have to learn this journey. Paul immediately, the first thing, you notice the first thing that Jesus tells him, now get up, go into this city and you will be told what you must do. The first thing that, that Saul received from Jesus after he had said, oh my gosh, he is, he is now Lord. I guess I got to wrestle with if I want him to be my Lord is he had to decide, do I obey this word from Jesus or do I do my own thing? And very quickly, Paul realized or Saul realized, I better do what the Lord wants me to do. And so he headed to Damascus. He spent time in prayer and waited to see what Jesus would do next. Now, I want to mention one more thing about the confession Jesus Christ is Lord that I think is important for, for us. Um, you know, there's been a lot of wrestling with sort of the discernment process about what kind of clergy we're going to have or what kind of clergy we do have. Uh, you know, have they been vetted? Uh, are they, you know, how quality are they? All those sorts of things. Well, one of the things I hope you want, you need to know, every United Methodist clergy person anywhere in our world will be asked many questions about their theology. One of the main ones that they are asked is, Jesus Christ is Lord. What does that mean to you in your life? And in that question, I as a ordained clergy person, I'm looking to see their views on Jesus's lordship over the world, Jesus's lordship in their life, Jesus's lordship over the church. I mean, we're looking deeply into making sure that they would give a good Jesus answer. And that's just one of the questions. There's like 30 or 40, okay? But that's one. And so it gives me hope for the church if the primary question every candidate for ministry is asked is how do you respond to the question, Jesus Christ is Lord? Because if they can't answer that question well, they don't need to be in the pulpit of Jesus. Amen? Okay, so they, we, that's part of it. Okay, so we're moving on though. As a result of this question, the second thing we see here is Saul begins to understand that there is this deep connection between Jesus Christ and his people, the church. Some kind of mystical connection that in some way, shape, or form, as we, you know, Jesus already told his disciples this. We just, we, we forget it, right? Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also, right? And when Jesus said that, like, he really meant it. Jesus is with us, and Jesus is in us. And when we experience something, joy, persecution, whatever, he experiences it just as much with us as well. And this kind of mystical con connection to Jesus Christ is something that, uh, that Paul experienced that would change his view of the church forever. 
And so to kind of dig into this more, St. Augustine helps us with this in talking about this a little bit and talking about how Jesus can be both in heaven but also be right here, right now with us. And we see that in this story. This is what St. Augustine, who lived in 400 AD, one of the great theologians said, how can we show that Jesus is there in heaven and that he is also here with us? Well, let Paul answer for us. Who was previously Saul? First of all, the Lord's own voice from heaven shows this. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, had Paul climbed up to heaven then? No. Had Paul even thrown a stone at heaven? No. It was Christians he was persecuting. Them he was tying up. It was them he was dragging off to be put to death. It was them he was everywhere hunting, out of their hiding places, and never sparing when he found them. To him the Lord said, Saul, Saul. Where is he crying out from? Heaven. So, yes, he's up above. He's in heaven. But why are you persecuting me? That question shows he's here below. He is with us. And so we see this mixture, this mystical connection that, that we all, once we confess Jesus as Lord, we become part of a, a bigger body, a bigger family, and a family where Jesus is right here with us in the midst. So we're, we're not on our own. We're not by ourselves. We're not deciding things on our own. We're not choosing the future on our own. Jesus, what, what Paul would say is, Jesus has become the head of the body of Christ, and we are the body of Christ. This understanding comes from his encounter right here, right now. And so a couple of verses that we see that in, uh, in first of all, 1 Corinthians 12, chapter, verse 27, uh, where Paul writes, Now you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. You're the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. That thinking comes from this encounter on the road to Damascus. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, he says, And God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so Jesus is our leader and our head. And so there is this amazing connection between us and Jesus Christ, this mystical connection. And he affirms it not just from his encounter on the road to Damascus, he also reaffirms it because of the Lord's Supper. Right, if you've read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 at all, which is the first recording of the Lord's Supper, the earliest recording of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. When Paul talks about that, one of the last warnings he gives is when you come to the table, you need to make sure you come recognizing the body of Christ. You need to come to the table. And you've heard of that, you know, don't come to the table unworthy. And a lot of times we think unworthiness had to do with like sin in your life and stuff like that. And that's not really Paul's emphasis in this passage. His emphasis is when you come to the table, come recognizing the body of Christ. 
recognizing that your brothers and sisters are as worthy at the table as you are. It doesn't matter if they make as much money as you do. It doesn't matter what kind of job they have. It doesn't matter if they're homeless. It doesn't matter the color of their skin. It doesn't matter who they are or what, you know, what their home ethnic language is. None of that matters to Jesus because when we come to the table, we come as the body of Christ. We come as one and we come together. And he says, recognize the body of Christ. If you're not able to recognize the body, then maybe you're not ready to come at all. And what he's talking about is recognizing that in our variety and our differences and political thinking and whatever other kind of things that make us different from each other, that when we come together, Jesus is with us and in us and we gather together at the table and that should be enough. We should be able to see Jesus in each other. Amen? That's what he's talking about. So this mystical connection between us is the body of Christ. And so the last couple of things, um, the last two points that we see here is this. When Jesus, we talked about this last Sunday, right? When Jesus speaks, our job is to listen and obey. When Jesus says something to us, our job is to listen and obey. We again, we see this response in Saul. We see this response in Ananias. And Ananias had to be convinced, right? Jesus comes to him and says, Ananias, I got this guy down the street. I want you to go pray for him and uh, heal him he's waiting for you there and Ananias says whoa 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 uh, are you sure I know who this guy is I think you know who this guy is too he's been doing an awful lot of harm and evil to the church he's throwing us in jail and throwing us in prison uh, you know are you sure you want me to do this and Jesus says yes go do this because Saul is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name and the nations and their kings and the people of Israel. And so the next principle for us is, as individuals and as the body of Christ is, like Paul and like Ananias, when we start listening to Jesus as Lord, the next step is to do what the Lord says. And part of that as a church is learning to listen for the Lord's voice together, to discern through each other what the will of God is. We've been doing uh, Experiencing God in our guys group on Monday night. We're about to finish with it. And I'm going to be using a lot of that stuff because Henry Blackaby, who wrote the study, is just, he has great insight into this kind of stuff. But one of the quotes he says for us, how does a church know what God's will is? How does a church know what God's will is? This is what Henry tells us. A church comes to know the will of God when the whole body understands what Christ the head is telling them. How does the church understand the will of God when the whole body, when all of us understand what Christ the head is telling them? And so that's what we're after. No matter when we're the church or where we're the church, we're always after trying to listen. What are you saying, Lord Jesus? You're our leader, you're our commander, you're our head. Where are we going? What are we supposed to do? And, and so what be should become important is not my opinion or your opinion or what you want or what anybody else wants. What needs to be important is, Jesus, we're listening for your voice. What do you want? 
and we're willing to follow you wherever you lead. If it's to stay United Methodist, we'll do that. If it's to uh, leave and be global Methodist or something else, you know, we'll do that. But we're trying to listen together. And part of that is listening to each other's voices. I know, you know, some folks want me to kind of tell you, this is what we ought to do. But I'm not the head. I'm not the head. Jesus is the head. And what Jesus is saying to you is important as what he's saying to me. And so in this discernment process, it, it's, it's critical. And we've tried to do this, but we're trying to do it together. To listen, Jesus, what are you saying to each of us? And I think that's a key piece. Is trying to listen together, not just to what I want, but to what God wants. And, and you never know uh, where this might take you. Uh, for instance, I'm going to pick on Mike Yoder just a bit. Is that okay, Mike? If I think he, yeah. Uh, he's okay, good. He's, he may be napping a bit, so that's even better. <laughs> now, Mike came into my office on Thursday and said, uh, I've had a conversation with a United Methodist pastor who's retired, and I, I knew he was going to have this conversation. We were talking about our debt and how do we handle our debt. And y'all, this is, none of this is decided, none of this is seen through, but but in that conversation, it became clear that perhaps we could talk to the United Methodist Foundation uh, who, who works with church debt, and they might could get our, our debt down to a monthly payment that, that could save us a lot of money, like maybe $80,000 or more a year kind of money, which would be a huge help for where we are at this moment. Uh, and so, you know, I'd kind of thought, well, that could be an option, but usually I don't think the differences are that much between loans, right? But we are looking into it, and it looks like it could be a possibility, and if it worked out, it could save us a lot of money by refinancing our loan with the United Methodist Foundation. Um, and that would be a great gift. It might allow us to keep more of our staff and keep doing the things we're doing longer, if we can work that way through. And that wasn't my idea. It wasn't exactly Mike's idea. Mike was listening to a, another Mike, a, a pastor in the United Methodist Church who's retired, who said, well, why don't you call them and see what might, that might look like? But that's how the Holy Spirit works. As we listen to the head together, Jesus starts to drop in and say, Chris, you haven't thought of this over here. I really need you to think more about that and look at that avenue, right? And so that's how it works. All right, one last point, and then we're headed home. The last thing I want you to notice here is how the Lord says to Ananias, Go, Paul is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, their kings, and the people of Israel. And this is a, once we say Jesus is Lord, the next thing I hope you'll be looking for is this. Lord, what is my assignment in your kingdom? Lord, what is my assignment in your kingdom? We all have assignments from Jesus. If Jesus is Lord of your life, he is going to give you an assignment. And as the church of Jesus, for us to be a healthy church, we need you to be willing to say yes to Jesus' kingdom assignments. Paul's kingdom assignment was a huge kingdom assignment. It's you're going to be a witness among the nations for me and you're going to suffer for my name. That's a huge assignment. And it's a huge assignment to get 30 seconds after you've called Jesus Lord. 
right? I mean, not many people, you know, oh, you just called me Lord. Okay, I've got this big assignment for you. Go take care of it. You know, now the Lord did give him uh, about 10 or 12 years to sort of figure things out, you know. But the assignment came early. But the second thing I want you to notice is that Ananias also had an assignment. And his assignment wasn't quite as big. His assignment was, I just need you to go talk to this guy that you think's crazy. And I need you to pray for him. And I need you to get him on the right path. And I'll do the rest. And that's a much more doable assignment for us. The Lord may say, you know, you have this neighbor. And I just need you to build a good relationship with him and maybe tell him a little about me. You have this classmate you go to school with. I need you to talk to him and tell him a little about me. Whatever it is, we all have our assignments. Um, I've been doing a lot of funerals, you know, the last couple of weeks. But in about all the funerals, there were people who found their assignment and did it with their heart and their life, right? Miss Joyce Wright, quiet, sweet, uh, didn't have a lot of conversations with her just because she's kind of like me. She's quiet and sweet and just, you know... (laughs) But she found her assignment. Her assignment was serving at the local uh, nursing home, helping her family members who were there, but also just being a servant there for 15 years. She received her assignment, one that fit her personality and who she was. You know, Tom Hudgens. Tom Hudgens was a firefighter early on, but after a while he began to figure out his assignment was really teaching and mentoring and And so he ended up helping counsel guys that were trying to come out of jail and come out of prison and figure out how to love their spouses and and, uh, to be healthy human beings. And that's an assignment he loved and lived. Right yesterday, we had Benson Plunkett's service here. And Benson Plunkett, you know, he jumped out of airplanes in the Army. That sounds like a good assignment, right? A little bit crazy, but good. And then he ran his family business for a while but he really found his assignment in being a teacher and being a principal, principal to some of you who are here today, whether at Heritage or the elementary or middle schools. He was faithful to his assignment. What is your assignment for the kingdom? I close with one example of a woman who's been faithful with her assignment. She's now in her 80s. Her name is... uh, Catherine, what's her last name? I'm getting it here. Catherine Barnwell. Catherine Barnwell grew up in England during World War II, um, made it through the war, bombs dropping all around her and all that. As she got older, she grew up in a good Christian home. And in college, she got in touch with Christian Union, which was kind of the student ministry there in England. And she began learning what it meant to call Jesus Lord and to get an assignment from him and follow him and see where it went. And so pretty quickly in college, she loved languages, she loved reading, and she got involved with linguistics and got in touch with Wycliffe Bible translators and thought, hey, this is cool, this is a good assignment. And so she said yes. And in that yes, um, it's transformed the world. And this is how. First, it just began, she went to Nigeria and began translating among this little people group their language so that she could translate Luke and the New Testament into their story. 
This is back in the 1960s. Now, Nigeria is one of the largest nations on the planet, and it has over 700 languages just in Nigeria. Can you imagine that? And so she was there translating one language into the gospel of Jesus. Now, she would be kicked in and out over the years because Nigeria wasn't always the most stable African country, but she kept doing her work. But after a while, she began to know, you know what? This is really important work, and it would be really good if I just didn't do this by myself. It'd be really awesome if I could help the community I was working in also help with the translation. And so she began, there weren't any good materials on really how to be a good Bible translator, and so she started kind of writing her own notes and her own lesson plans, and she began teaching these, and she did it in a way that used very common language, you know, not the high theological language of some, you know, big theological people, but just normal everyday language. And it was so important, well, she, in about 70, she turned it into a book. And at first, people didn't really like her book a whole lot, because one, the book was written, again, to empower sort of the local community to be a part of the translation process. And people were like, no, no, that, that's our college-educated edu scholarly people. We need to be in charge of the process. You know, you don't want these people who don't have an education to be a part of, you know, that, no, you know. And so early on, they were very skeptical about what she'd written and why she'd written it. But over the years, people began finding, finding it and reading it and studying it. And more and more, it became the manual for scripture translation anywhere and everywhere. That's a huge impact. She began shaping how translations were done by Wycliffe and others all over the world. But that's not all. The 1990s came. She's now in her 60s. It's time to retire, right? But she doesn't retire. Instead, the head of Campus Crusade for Christ wants to take the Jesus film, which had been translated into several languages, and take it over the world, and he wanted to translate the 30 largest remaining languages that did not yet have a word of Scripture. And so they needed a Gospel of Luke. They needed uh, to translate the Jesus film. And so they needed someone to lead this project. No one else wanted to do it. So she raised her hand and said, okay, I'll do it. And as she began to do it, she came up with this new way of Bible translation that had never been tried before. And that is to go and say, like Nigeria, and get several translators from several communities together at once, all around the table, 12 different languages, sitting down, figuring out together, how are we going to translate the Gospel of Luke in these languages? And all of a sudden, a process that would take years just to do one language began taking months. And they got those 30 languages that they were trying to turn the Jesus film into pretty darn quick. And from that, they said, well, let's do more. And over the last several years, she has been involved in translations that have touched the lives of millions of people. It's estimated that the Jesus film, across its life, has brought 600 million people to profess faith in Jesus Christ or more. 600 million since she started her translation work just in the last 10, 15 years, 
half of that number comes from her work. What happened maybe the 30 years earlier versus her 15 years continues to make a tremendous impact all because this one lady who's now in her 80s was willing to say yes to her assignment. And every day we wake up, we can do it too. And so today, may you call Jesus your Lord. May the Lord guide us, his church. And may we find our assignments for the kingdom in our community around the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit,